Welcome to the Heal Podcast, where we believe God heals people in the way that brings Him the most glory and brings us closest to Him. Whether you've received healing, you're in the fight of your life, or you gave up on God a long time ago, you are welcome here. As you come to the table, listen with an open mind, knowing everyone's journey is unique, but pain is our common language. Hey there, welcome to the Heal Podcast. My name is Tara Bradham Deny. It is my joy to be the host of this podcast and bring you incredible guests like the one that we have today. Douglas Kane McKelvey is a guest I have wanted to have on the show since I heard about the second volume of Every Moment Holy, which he has written. So the first one is a little bit more basic. These are prayers that are written for everyday things in your life where you can invite God into making every moment holy. But volume two, I think, is going to be really applicable here to us. So it is on death, grief, and hope. And there are prayers in here, you guys, for things that you just don't have prayers or words for. The Doug has poured himself out. He's gotten feedback from people and he has let the spirit inform how he's written these. They are just incredible. I'm going to list a couple of the titles here so that you hear some of the prayers that he has written. To stir courage in a child facing death. For seasons of uncertainty. For the morning of a medical procedure for long-term caregivers, for preparing the heart to return to God what is his, giving voice to the costly confession, before ending life support, for missing someone, for removing one's wedding ring, for returning to daily life after a loss, and so many more, you guys. They're just absolutely incredible. So Doug is not only an author, but he's also a song lyricist, a scriptwriter, and a video director. So some of the songs that he has written, you might have heard sung by Switchfoot, Kenny Rogers, or Jason Gray. And then he also has a novel-length story in Andrew Peterson's Wing Feather Tales collection, which, shout out to The Chosen, I saw that they were advertising the Wing Feather Tales saga. (laughs) That's a mouthful. When I went and saw The Chosen in theaters a little bit a while ago. So that's really cool. And he has some other picture books. Some of them were illustrated by Thomas Kincaid. And he's just had his fingers in so many things that honor the Lord with his creativity. And this one is no different. So we talk mostly about every moment holy today, because I think that's what's going to be applicable to you. And we talk about how to wrestle through these seasons of grief and loss, how to look to God amidst them and acknowledge both the sorrow and the joy present within these seasons of our life. So it is my pleasure to welcome Douglas Kane McKelvey to the Heal Podcast. So Doug, I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast. I can bring the the coffee that I'm not allowed to. Well, I don't drink coffee during during pregnancy, even though I'm sure I could, but I'm thrilled to have you. So welcome to the Heal Podcast. I'm happy to be here. Thank you, Tara. So these are some fun questions that I'm sure you you don't get much, but I was reading through some of your different bios online, which have crazy things. But there are two things I noticed to start with, which one is that you have done work with Thomas Kincaid, which my mom loves his paintings. We have them in our house. So I was like, well, that's something, especially now having a kid that I'm going to have to go and get that book and put that on my list. So that's super fun. And then the other thing I saw is that you grew up in East Texas. Yeah. 
East Texas. So I'm from Austin, but we okay. went to like El Paso and things sometimes for swim meets. So tell me what you learned growing up in East Texas. Oh, goodness. So I grew up in a relatively small town of Longview, Texas, which was, well, at the time, it seems like it was about three hours east of Dallas, but that was when the speed limit was 55 miles an hour. Mm. So I don't think it's, don't think it's quite as far from Dallas anymore. You know, it was, it was an interesting place to grow up. I mean, I spent most of my time outside. My friends and I would you know, always form clubs, or we might have called them gangs, I don't know, (laughs) in the woods, you know, always, always manufacturing some sort of imagined danger that we could run from. An interesting thing for me about growing up in East Texas was I had these dreams of things that I wanted to do. And I just assumed I'm going to do these someday. You know, I wanted to make movies, I wanted to, to write books, I wanted to do all these things. And you know, my parents were very supportive or encouraging. Mm-hmm. You know, they would say, hey, you've really got talent at this. Maybe you should do this. But I don't think anyone really understood that those things were possibilities mm-hmm. and that there actually are, there are paths you can follow. Yeah. You know, that if you want to make movies, then you go to one of these schools and get in a film program, and then you get an internship. And then at that time, pretty much you needed to move to LA and pay your dues. And, you know, now I know a lot of people who have followed that path and done that. I also wanted to have a band and, you know, Mm -hmm. write songs. And providentially, doors opened for me to move to Nashville, Mm -hmm. where, though I didn't end up having a band because I don't have a sense of rhythm and and can't hear it (laughs) soon, But I did become a songwriter. Mm -hmm. And I watched the people that I knew who were, you know, as talented as I was, but who stayed in small towns and spent decades trying to make a career, Mm. who never quite were able to do that. And geography and community, I I came to realize is so vital Mm. to those to those sorts of endeavors. And then watching second generation of kids that I knew, you know, from the time they were born, who, who grew up in these communities, I've, I've been privileged to be a part of in the Nashville area, and seeing how naturally and fearlessly, and easily, they completely bypass the hurdles that their parents had, mm-hmm. you know, moving to a new place and struggling and trying to do this. And it's like, you know, these kids are, are making records, they're making feature films, they're doing all these things that really is this generational work of, of community. So I think because of that experience, I've been pretty sensitive to proactively mentor mm like high school age, junior high age kids that I come across who like seem to have a real talent for writing and want to do it. They have a passion for it, but they don't have the vision for, well, how do I get from point A to to point B where I want to be? Right. Yeah. And I think because I grew up without that, that there there are so many, I think it's one of the ways the body of Christ is supposed to function, mm-hmm. right? That we're supposed to that it's us collectively 
advancing the kingdom of God Mm -hmm. and that there's not supposed to be this zero sum game mindset that is the predominant mindset in the world that, Oh, if you, if you land this record deal, then that means I didn't get it. Mm -hmm. And so we're in competition, you know, but it's like, no, this is, this is us. We are one body and, and it's part of what it means to learn to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn, right? It's like we're all interconnected in that mm, way. And, yeah. and that might dovetail more topically back into what we're actually here to talk about in this conversation. Yeah. Because I, I think that that call to be one body and to rejoice and mourn with one another, even in the same space, in the same hour, yeah. there might be one friend that we need to truly rejoice with and another that that we need to truly shed tears with over what they're going through. And that call to be alive to that full range of emotion, to be able to hold joy and sorrow simultaneously, mm-hmm. I think does have a lot to do with how we are to navigate our own pain or the pain of those who are around us. Mm -hmm. So how do you suggest, I mean, this is such a big question, but that we do hold joy and sorrow simultaneously. I mean, that's a hard thing to wake up and say, you know what, this is a hard day and just so focused on ourselves. Is that getting outside and, and seeing other people? I mean, what does that tangibly look like on, we're recording this on a Tuesday you know, for you to go out and rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Yeah, and I hesitate to put myself forward as someone who has profound answers for that. I mean, it's something I feel like I'm learning as I go and Mm -hmm. that, you know, that I've awakened to fairly late in life. But I can I can recount a couple of things, at least anecdotally, that, that maybe would be a starting point for us. Mm-hmm. The moment that that scripture first came alive to me in terms of the deeper meaning of it kind of opening up in a, in a profound way was I was watching an interview with, he's known sometimes as the Bishop of Baghdad. He's a British Anglican priest was the the pastor of a church in Baghdad, Iraq. Hmm. And when the U.S. invaded Iraq and toppled Saddam Hussein, in some ways, I think things became better for some people, but actually it was a much more difficult time for the church in Iraq because for all of his oppressiveness and, and repression and brutality, Saddam Hussein was keeping various factions, religious groups in check, wasn't allowing them just to commit violence. Hmm. Now, suddenly it was open season on Christians, on the confessing church hmm. in Baghdad. So in this this interview that I saw with, I guess he's Bishop White, because he's referred to as the Bishop of Baghdad, but he was laughing and joking, just uh, frankly being silly. And he's someone who I think it's, I think it's MS that he suffers from as well and was, you know, dealing with that through his years there. Mm. But he was just so lighthearted. And then the the host who was interviewing him asked him about what was happening in his church in Baghdad currently. And 
he immediately got very serious and talked about how there were two or three of their members a week, typically, who were being murdered because of following Jesus. And that frequently he was baptizing someone one Sunday and then a couple weeks later was burying them because their family had killed them Mm -hmm. for, you know, leaving Islam. Oh, my gosh. And he just started weeping as he was talking about this. And then 30 seconds later, the topic had switched and he was laughing and being silky again. (laughs) And at first there was something a little jarring about it. And then I realized this is a man who has come to understand what it means to live in the joy of the moment or to live in the sorrow and the grief of the moment And these things are not opposed, Hmm. but he is going to fully feel whichever one he is in in the moment. Mm -hmm. But it's not going to keep him from then, you know, the the sorrow, he's not going to hide from it. He's not going to deny it. He's going to weep over it. Mm -hmm. But then the joy of having a fun conversation or of experiencing something that's beautiful and good and just enjoying the fellowship in the moment the sorrow isn't going to overshadow that. And it hit me so hard. And there was the question of, can I become that kind of person? Can I be that alive Hmm. to whatever is happening in the moment to, to hold the joy and the, the sorrow and the grief and, and to learn that those things are not, they're not actually opposed to one another, Hmm. that they can both be fully embraced at the same time. So I think there's something, at least in terms of of seeing that modeled, Mm -hmm. it gave me hope that that can be done, Mm -hmm. right? That there there is a place that the heart can come to where we can be fully alive Mm -hmm. to the brokenness of this world, to the grief that that engenders, but also be alive at the same time to to the beauty of it, to the grace that is given in big and small ways mm-hmm. and to delighting in those things that are that are good. I just feel like it's interesting you saying that because in the ministry that we do, I almost feel like I jar myself when I really <laughs> live that way. Because, you know, even in this conversation, we were talking before and you were kind of sharing about how your daughters have chronic pain. And I mean, my instinct is I want to go into that and, and hear their story and, you know, mourn with you in that. But then it's like, okay, well, we need to keep going. And can we joke about East Texas and all these things in the same conversation? And sure. it seems like... I'm either judging myself or other people will be judgmental of, you know, why can't you just sit in in the grief all day? But I think in a weird way, we are meant to have that full circle and yet we're not used to it. And I think we judge people who really do live in joy and sorrow and can go between those two quickly even. Do you see that? Yeah, I, I do. Experientially, it feels right to the degree that I'm able to to live in that, I don't feel like I judge myself anymore because it just feels like, it feels like freedom. Mm-hmm. You know, I had an experience where a, a friend of mine had died in a car accident and it was fairly young, had a, a wife and, and two young kids. And the funeral was, there were 
all of these people there who I had been close to at earlier times in life, but had kind of drifted away from and not like in a something happened and our relationship was broken, but just, Mm -hmm. you know, geographically or, or, you know, our lives just didn't intersect anymore in the same places. And so there was this great sense of reunion. And through the whole service, I mean, I was feeling the, the grief. There was also a sense in which it felt like I was getting a picture of the renewal of all things that here we are together again, and there's a joy in this sense of of restored community, of of renewed community. And after the service, I was talking to a friend I hadn't seen in several years, and, you know, we were kind of laughing together. Mm -hmm. And it's not that our hearts weren't heavy for the, you know, for our friend's family and and that we weren't grieving his loss. Mm Mm-hmm. But it it was just like one of those moments when time seems to become meaningless. And you kind of feel like you're on the the doorstep of eternity in a way. And I think because of that, because of this sense of of reunion, it's not separable from the hope of the resurrection, Mm -hmm. of our own resurrection, of our friend that we just lost, that this isn't forever. He will be resurrected in a physical body. Mm -hmm. He will walk the renewed, restored earth when Christ returns, and it's as it should be, that we will have fellowship together in this place again, all of us. Mm. So that was what I was experiencing. But as people were starting to leave their seats at the end of it, and, and I was talking to my friend, and we joked and laughed a little bit, there was a, a woman who I don't even know who walked by and just said something like, well, I'm glad to see that, that you're happy hmm. and said it in a way where, I mean, I didn't, it didn't make me upset at her because I thought she's probably a grandparent or great grandparent of, mm-hmm. you know, someone that I, I've never met, but she's probably feeling so much pain right now that, you know, she couldn't see what was happening between my friend and I in the real context of it. And Mm -hmm. I bring up that story because I I think what you're saying is true, that there are times when someone is judged for kind of living in that place and and holding both. And and often it's because the person judging is looking from the place of their own pain, Mm. you know, that they're feeling something that's, that's overwhelming and take any sort of joy manifestation of joy in another person around them as either a denial of their pain, Mm -hmm. you know, an affront to it. Yeah. There is a need to be sensitive. Right. You know, in that case, it it might have been better if my friend and I had, you know, walked somewhere outside. Mm -hmm. But it was just such a natural thing. Yeah. You know, to see each other after years and to embrace and then ask each other how we're doing and yeah. Somehow that leads to a comment where we started laughing. And... and it's almost like we need that, too. I mean, it's like when you're watching a movie and it's just so intense and you call it, what, comedic relief, right? You need right, right. something in there to give you a little bit of relief from yeah. all the pain that you're facing, too. It's yeah. like we crave that. As I was writing volume two of Every Moment Holy, 
there was a certain point, it was getting close to the holiday season. I had written a liturgy for the hardship of holidays, basically of, you know, if you've lost someone, it can be especially difficult to navigate Mm -hmm. that holiday season. And I didn't think it was probably in its final form at that point, Mm -hmm. but I just thought there might be people out there who need it this year. Maybe I should just make it available. So I just did a a Facebook post and said, if anyone would want this for this year, I'm happy to send you a a copy of it. And I don't remember exactly how many responses I got, like over the next day and a half, two days, it might have been 200, something like that. Mm -hmm. So it, it actually took me several days to respond to those because most of the people weren't just saying, hey, I want this. Most of them were saying, hey, my son just died from a high school football injury two weeks ago. Can you send me this? Mm. Or, you know, I just just lost my mom. I mean, everyone was opening a bit of their story. And I was aware as I went through that process of wanting to respond personally to each person and acknowledge the grief and the pain that they were sharing with me, there began to be this accruing weight, not like a burden that, oh, I want to get out from under this. But I I was actually aware that this is me beginning to learn just a little bit maybe of what it means to mourn with those who mourn, Mm. to become more aware that, wow, at any given moment, there are this many people around me in the circles that I have contact with who are navigating these tremendously painful situations. There were also people who contacted me saying something like, I would love to be able to have your book, but I probably only have six months to live, so I won't still be here when it's published. Hmm. Do you have any of the prayers you can go ahead and send me? And then there there were other people who walked with me through the process of the, like during the second year, it was a two-year process writing that book, who were just willing to open an ongoing window into their own pain and grief process. Hmm. I mean, there was one woman in particular who did that more than anyone else for that second year, who when I met her, it was two weeks after she had lost her husband and two daughters in a fire. Wow. And she just, you know, week by week would would let me know what she was going through, what she needed, what she was facing that she thought it would be helpful to have a a prayer for. Mm-hmm. And and then she was one of the primary people who were reading the drafts of those prayers and giving me feedback, letting mm-hmm. me know where I was completely clueless about something or where I was in some instances even saying something in a way that might be hurtful mm-hmm. to someone in that situation. And and so those people's willingness to, to open up those most painful places in their own hearts, in their own experience, unto the end of, of serving, you know, those who would follow them along those paths of, of pain and grief, yeah. you know, they became the gatekeepers. Mm-hmm the prayers didn't go into the ready to be published pile until they signed off on them. Mm -hmm. But that, that as well was part of that same process of being more intentional 
ongoing relationship with people who were walking through these really difficult passages of life and feeling like the the gravity that accrued because of that it wasn't like this deep depressing shadow it was much more of a okay i've gone way too long in my life without maturing in this way as a follower of jesus hmm. without really beginning to apprehend what this might mean to mourn with those who mourn wow. to live with a greater awareness of how many people around me are hurting are suffering are mm. whether it's that kind of emotional pain or a, a physical pain i don't think it's something that i naturally would choose which is probably why you know it was very late in life that i began to experience that but i do think it's something that that we're clearly called to in scripture to be intentional about Mm -hmm. I'm just a late bloomer, I guess, or <laughs> <laughs> I think none of us love pain, right? I think people ask me all the time, well, how do you do the ministry you do? Because I hear stories, maybe not of all the time of death, but of just horrible suffering. That's what I do all day yeah. is listen to stories of suffering. And so that's encouraging to me. I, I do think maybe it is something God calls us to, but I I want to weave these things you've talked about together in, into a question. Let's see if I can do it. But the, the fact that you talked about the joy and the sorrow and then going through all of this and talking about as Christians, our hope is the resurrection. Our hope is the new earth and the garden city and all of that coming. And we have joy in that. But I'm curious, when you were writing specifically volume two, you know, was your goal to sit in the grief with people and then move them to joy? Was your goal to have little joys in there? I mean, when you were getting feedback from people, what ended up being the mixture of joy and sorrow in a book on liturgies for death, grief, and hope? Like, how did those end up mixing together? I think from the beginning, the, the element of hope was in the DNA of the book because with the prayers for every moment holy, what I've tried to do with volume one and then with volume two is to look at some facet of life, of our experience, and say, what do I know to be true about this? Not what do I think might be, what, mm. what you know, what's some conjecture that might make someone feel better, but what is the diamond hard foundation that I can bring this down to and defend scripturally? That was a bit of an exercise with some of them, like in volume one with a liturgy for the loss of a living thing, which is pretty much for a pet. Mm -hmm. I left it slightly broader in the title just because I can't foresee all the, the uses someone might used for something. Yeah. But I'm not going to go that place of saying, and now your your puppy is in heaven. Mm -hmm. Because I think scripture is silent about that. Yeah. You know, about what happens with an animal. So so then you have to dig deeper and say, okay, well what is our hope in this? What is the hope that scripture gives that applies to this and work through that? so that the prayer would ultimately offer a real hope in the face of that loss and the and the sorrow that comes with it. Mm -hmm. So as I was writing volume two, I actually, there was a point when I was wondering, 
is some of it going to be too redundant? Hmm. Because the hope that we have in the goodness of God, in his faithfulness, in his promises, in the promise of the coming resurrection, the restoration, the glorification of our physical bodies, of the renewed world that that we will live in. Most things come down to that when we are looking at death, at the at the loss of someone close to us, or facing our own dying, as all of us will have to do, at the point where we begin to navigate that valley of the shadow. The hope in all of those various facets of the of the things we go through is the same. Mm-hmm. Right? It's it's that this is not the end. There is a kingdom that is coming in its fullest realization. You know, we carry within us now the beginning of it and within the community of the of the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. But it's just, you know, it's, it's we're seeing through a glass darkly. There's still this veil there and it is all going to be restored. It's going to be made right. There was a certain point many years ago when I just began to sense that as I'm reading scripture, as I'm reading the New Testament, the, the letters of Paul, that the hope he placed in his own physical resurrection was very foreign to me. Hmm. And so there was a point where I realized, okay, there's something I'm missing here. You know, my sort of sense of how things are going to play out and is deficient because he hangs everything on that. Mm-hmm. And he goes back to it again and again. And so I think that was the that was the beginning point of me beginning to look at that a little differently and say, okay, what you know, what have I missed? Mm-hmm. What is it that's that's impoverished, malnourished in my own theology and worldview and understanding such that I'm not hanging so much hope on that. And Mm -hmm. there's been a journey for me there over over the years since of hope coming to matter a whole lot more to me. Maybe part of it is just growing older and, you know, not having that youthful sense that, okay, I'm going to live forever. And, you know, Mm -hmm. like you start to realize that, oh, I, I, I can't do everything that I used to be able to do. I can't do it as well. I, you know, so in writing volume two, I couldn't get away from that hope. And my family and a lot of my friends, I I know that they were worried about me as I was writing volume two, because volume one had, it had taken a toll. It was, that one took a year and it was probably one of the hardest years of my life and in a lot of different ways. And so I think they thought, oh no, now he's writing about death and grief. Yeah. And as it stretched <laughs> into the second year of writing, they would sometimes ask me, are you know, a friend would say, are you, are you okay? You know, this has to be really difficult and mm-hmm. and their concern was a good thing. I mean, I'm glad that I have friends who were concerned for my well-being and were checking in on me, but I got the idea that they thought I was just going into a shadowed room and mm-hmm. you know, imbibing some from some cup of darkness <laughs> each day and, and and it was it was so not that mm. because 
what I was really doing was dwelling on the implications of my eternal hope, of the hope of the resurrection and the restoration yeah. and the new creation, and finding that as I look at these difficult subjects and try to write prayers for people that would articulate the confusion, the various emotions, the, the turbulence, the, the pain that is in someone's heart and, and in their mind as they're walking through this. Yet what I'm finding is that there is, as I, I used the phrase a moment ago, this diamond hard foundational hope mm -hmm. that you sift to the bottom of that darkness and here's this light yeah. that comes shining through it. So it was kind of like a process of just proving over and over again to my own heart that death is a transitory, temporary thing. It is an enemy that will be defeated. Mm -hmm. And this is real. This is hard. This is real loss. This is real sorrow. And we shouldn't close ourselves off to it. We should grieve fully these things. But even in the midst of them, there's a hope. Yeah. And, and because there's a hope, there is the seed of a joy that will reemerge, mm. right? And it's it's fierce. Yeah. It's a fierce seed of joy. It will not be crushed. The darkness can't thwart it. It's mm -hmm. it's going to put down roots. It's going to break out of that husk of its seed, and it's going to grow into this giant tree at some point. Mm -hmm. That's going to put forth fruit and leaves and shade and. So for me, that element of hope just became so much more pronounced through the process of, of writing those. And, yeah. and part of that goes back to the people who were so gracious to open their own pain to me and let me walk through things with them because they would be honest about the horrible, hard weeks. Mm -hmm. But then inevitably the hope would, would return. Mm -hmm for them. So I, I saw that not just in my own experience writing, but, you know, and, and in things that I can look back at in my own experience in life, but I was seeing it with some of these people in real time as yeah. they're walking through their own very difficult seasons. Yeah. Well, I feel like you're putting words to what I experience a lot of the times, but I'm so grateful for what you're saying. I love it because I want people to go if they haven't buy this book because it's profound. And I think what you're saying is I mean, you're, you don't deny people's pain. I mean, you sit in the grief. You, you don't, you acknowledge that. And yet there is, there is that seed that won't be crushed. It's like you leave people to dig through the darkness to the core of who God is. And, and because of that, if God is the diamond in the rough, it inevitably leads us to joy and hope, which I mean, that's just the gospel, right? Yeah, so your book yeah. is just, uh, I think, a creative version of pointing us to the gospel and our death and grief and pain and everything else, which is probably your hope, right? Yeah, it is. You know, I didn't set out to write volume two. Um, when I was writing volume one, there was this long list of potential prayers to write of subjects that I I thought I might write about. I knew I wouldn't get to all of them, at least not before the publication or the deadline when it had to go to the printer. And one of them that was on the list was, I think at that point, the title was a, litur a liturgy for the morning of a funeral. So I had thought, you know, I want to have a prayer for those in that 
immediate place of the, you know, the most poignant grief and sort of shell-shocked place that we can be in when we've just lost someone close to us and, hmm. you know, a few days later, we're burying them. And But emotionally, I did not have the bandwidth to get to that one, to start on it. You know, in those last few months, there were several I was looking at thinking, well, I would like to have this one in there. I don't know if I can get to it. But that one, I just couldn't bring myself to do, even though my editor who runs Rabbit Room Press had been announcing that one when he would list, these are prayers that are going to be in here, but I just couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. But I knew as soon as the manuscript was sent to the printer, that that was the gaping hole in it, that that was the one above all others that I hadn't written yet, that I thought that probably should have been in there. And mm -hmm. once I feel emotionally ready, I should just go ahead and write that one. We can make it available for free as a PDF download on the website. And then people at least have access to it. And if I ever write a second volume, we can put it in that. So it was a year after I finished volume one before I started trying to write prayers again. I just didn't feel it, it took me that long to recover. <laughs> so I started trying to write that one. And within a few days of working on it, the prayer was 10 pages long, which in the format of the book probably would have been 15 pages. Yeah. And I just knew that's that's unwieldy. You know, that, that doesn't work. I need to go back through it, figure out what's essential, pare it down to that. And I couldn't find anything that I could cut. And so I realized, okay, this looks like it's actually five different prayers because there are kind of five different focuses here. So, okay, mm -hmm. so I'll, I'll work on each of those individually. So I, I split up that and started working on those. And then the same thing kept happening that as I would work on one of those additional facets would open up that I would realize, well, that really needs to be its own prayer you know, that's important enough. And then I thought, well, I'm writing these for people who are grieving, but what about someone who's navigating the process of their own dying and, and yeah. facing that, coming to terms with that and dealing with what it means to be in physical decline. And so I thought, okay, well, I should probably do that. And then I thought, well, what about caregivers mm -hmm. for people who are going through these things? You know, the, we, I probably need a prayer for that. So then pretty quickly, I realized, I think this is its own book. Hmm. And so I, I called my editor, Pete, and told him, I think this is its own book. It's topically focused, so it'll just be 35 prayers, a third the length of, of the first book. And maybe I can finish it in six months. And he's like, great, yeah, let's do that. But then it just kept kept expanding in the in the same way. And then as I began to interact with the people I've mentioned earlier who were walking through these things, they began to suggest things to tell me I could really use one for mm. this. And there would be things that never would have occurred to me. The prayers are so specific. Yeah. That's what I was curious how they came about because they are so specific. Yeah. So it ended up being 70 pages longer than volume one, even though it was topically <laughs> focused. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's 
incredible to hear the process of it and, and how God has taken you on this journey. It seems like a kind of going to a more shallow place with everything that you're sharing. But I'm curious, do you have other things that God has put on your heart? Do you think you'll write another every moment holy? I mean, it sounds like they, I mean, understandably, when you read the work, take a lot out of you. What is on the docket as far as your creative life right now and what you see God doing right now? Well, I I do hope to write more liturgical prayers. And I have written a handful that could end up in a subsequent volume. I'm working on doing script writing for an animated series currently. Fun. And then I have, you know, I always have some fiction projects, some novels or whatever that I'm that I'm dabbling in that I would like over the next year to mm-hmm. to bring one of those to completion. I have I probably have eight novels Goodness. in various states. Some of them some of them I might have written forty or sixty thousand words on already and others are just more an idea that I like that I have maybe a beginning chapter wow. or something. But yeah, I would I would love to be able to to bring some of those projects to fruition as well. Yeah. So how can people be in touch with what you're doing so whatever whatever happens and the creative process they can be aware and following you and keeping up with all of that? Pretty much anything that I publish and that's you know a book will be available at the Rabbit Room store, which is store.rabbitroom.com. Or actually, if you go to dougmckelvey.com, I used to have a website. Now it just takes you to my page on the Rabbit Room store where it will you know, show anything that I have available will be there. Yeah. And I know, too, there's an app for Every Moment Holy. There's all kinds of fun resources when you get into it. But there's one thing that you did mention before that I really wanted people to hear about that we didn't talk about, which was your daughter's song or recording. Will you share that as a resource for people and how they can hear that? Because I think they would really enjoy that. Yeah. So my middle daughter, I have three daughters. When she was 17, she started having chronic pain. She was more than anyone I've ever known. She just loved life and every part of it. I mean, she she loved learning. She loved math. She loved music and was gifted at that. She had been, she had gotten a scholarship to Vanderbilt's pre-college program when she was in middle school. So, Man. you know, by the time she graduated high school, she had already had like a full slate of the same music classes that undergraduate students would take at Vanderbilt in the music program. She had already done all of those. Wow, it's unreal. And then went into a music program in college. But she started having pain that forced her to quit playing the piano classically. And she couldn't run cross country anymore. And, you know, we took her to various doctors and one of them prescribed a medication that it was an off-label use. It was one that that the doctor said, well, there's some indication that it might help heal some nerve damage or something. So, you know, even though that's not what the drug is made for, I'm going to put you on it. And she just had a severe reaction to that. Within a couple months, she was psychotic, was having full-blown visual auditory you know, just horrendous, nightmarish kind of hallucinations. She didn't tell us for a couple months because she 
was just afraid she was going crazy. And, you know, she was having suicidal impulses, which was completely unlike her, was having rage issues, which she had never experienced anything like that. So when we found out, she tapered off of the drug, but it had messed her up and it had kind of blown her brain mm. up. And since then, she's been on this trajectory, I would say, but she has some days that are much better than others. I mean, there are still lingering effects of that years later, of the, the changes that that made that she still had to deal with, as well as the pain was never successfully addressed. So she has the, the physical pain as well. But she, maybe it's been three years ago now, that she composed this hour-long piece that is really a musical chronicling of that journey of going into that, you know, being plunged into that nightmarish, painful sort of experience. And then the fight through that to find hope again, to choose to love and to, to move forward. So the name that she records under is Ella Mine, M-I-N-E. And that project is called Dream War. She's performed it live only a handful of times with a full band. Um, and it's just this, it's just this stunning piece. I mean, I knew she was talented, but I had never seen her orchestrate this entire vision, you know, for a, I think she had a 12 piece band that she performed it with. And it has just, you know, people who have experienced similar seasons of whether it's physical pain or, you know, emotional pain, or specifically, she's met a lot of people who suffered the same thing of a severe negative reaction to a drug that was prescribed to them, who have, you know, walked through exactly the same thing she has, but so many people have just connected with it, because it is, it's the same kind of piece that we're talking about, that it does... I mean, it plunges fully into the dark, shadowed difficulty of that experience and then comes to this very hard-won hmm. and real resolution at the end, not of saying everything is tied up with a, night bow, a nice bow and I no longer have pain, but of, in spite of this, I'm going to choose to still love, even though that leads to pain. I'm going to choose to to embrace hope and to still live this life. And, you know, it, it takes us right back to that holding the sorrow in one hand, even as you hold the joy or the hope in the other, hmm. that that's, that is what we are called to as authentic Christ followers. We learn to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And we learn to acknowledge and embrace our own grief and pain, even as we embrace the joy and the hope. And it, her project is available on, on Spotify. I think the Rabbit Room store maybe has physical CDs that they sell. But. What's her name or how? I'll look it up and, and link it for people. But Yeah, it's Ella Mine, 
M-I-M-E. Got it. Thank you for sharing that. I think people are going to be really encouraged by that. I feel like your summary, you just put a nice bow on the interview for me, wrapping it all up and bringing it full circle. But was there anything that was on your heart in any of this or unrelated that you wanted to share before we stopped the recording? Um, I feel like I've talked way too much already, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for doing this. I think it was absolutely incredible. So thank you. Thanks. I enjoyed talking to you. So, so good, right? I hope you guys enjoyed that interview, even when we're talking about hard subjects, which is what we do here at The Heal Podcast. I believe that these are so vital for us to have a well-rounded faith, a well-rounded view of God and who he is as he comforts us in our suffering. So go pick up a copy of Every Moment Holy Volume 2. I've linked a lot of other things in the blog that we talked about, as well as in the show notes. You can find things like Doug's Daughter's album and the Dream More Project and other things. So thank you to Doug for his time today. And I am praying you guys have a nugget that you can work through with the Lord this week after this interview. We'll see you back here. We have three more episodes in season two. See you on Monday.